Save big money at Menards. Let the fresh air in and keep the bugs out with replacement screen for your doors and windows from AdForce. It's easy to install, durable against the elements, and comes in a variety of types to suit your needs. Repair your screens today with a roll of replacement screen on sale through May 5th. And check out more great deals happening now in our weekly flyer on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. What's up, Pirates Nation? Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Rump Buncher Radio. Today, we sat down with Chris Mack of 93.7 The Fan to talk about his experiences with the Pittsburgh Pirates and what he expects in this 2021 season. As always, guys, check us out on rumbunter.com, on fansided.com, Apple Music, and on our Rumbunter app, as well as social media at Rumbunter. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoy. Rumbunter Radio, episode 39. Trey Yannity and Marty Leap with you. As always, today we are joined by another special guest, Chris Mack of 93.7 The Fan, formerly doing Pirates pre- and post-game for The Fan, now the host of The Fan Morning Show. Chris has had all kinds of experiences in broadcasting. He's done PA. He spent some time with the University of Pittsburgh with ESPN. Chris, thanks so much for being with us this morning. Thanks for having me, guys. I really appreciate it. Of course. We're going to talk Pirates baseball this morning. We're going to dive into Chris's background, talk about his career, his experiences with the Pirates. Let's start early on your your most early memories in broadcasting, how you kind of got into it, and really where you got your start. Well, for people who are from Pittsburgh, you'll remember the old DVE morning show with Scott Paulson and Jim Cran. Uh, I was a kid when they were at their peak. Not really a kid, a teenager, I guess. So my friends and I would drive to school every morning and listen to the DVE morning show and listen to the goofy, crazy stuff they did that made us literally LOL before LOL was a thing. Uh, and I was pretty inspired by that. I was inspired by the comedy aspect of it. I was inspired by the fact that they were regular Pittsburghers, by the fact that they could talk about sports, all of it. And so right around the same time in high school, we had a civics teacher who's also a, a pretty well-known, at least in this corner of the world, Western Pennsylvania, uh, volleyball and softball coach, Paul Hines. So Mr. Hines had a civics class and didn't want to just, just how bills got passed through Congress. He actually wanted to teach kids how to plan for themselves, to take care of their lives, or at least set some wheels in motion. So he spent an entire nine weeks uh, telling us and teaching us how to create what he called sort of like a, a life binder or a dream binder. And so you just cover this binder inside and out with all the things that you wanted to do. And that's how I realized, hey, I'm not good at sports. I'm on the JV football team, and I don't even play there. Uh, I can't really skate well enough to play hockey for the high school. So I, I'm not good at baseball. So what can I do? I can cover sports. And that's when I did it. He made everybody lay out in plain English, in ink. What do you want to be when you grow up, for lack of a better way to put it? And I said, I'm going to be a sports center anchor. So that was my goal from that point forward. And then once I sort of melded that with listening to the comedy and sports aspects of the DV morning show, the old DV morning show. Uh, I got to college and immediately wanted to get involved in radio. Uh, it started just playing my own CD collection over a student radio station. And then knew that I was going to be in state college. I went to Penn State. 
Uh, I was going to be in State College for the summer after my sophomore year. So that January, I went and visited uh, the top 40 radio station there in State College, which at the time was, no lie, called Beaver 103. Um, so I, I walk into the, the building, the forever broadcasting building, and I say, hey, I'm just looking for an internship this summer. I'll get you coffee. I'll make coffees. Like, I had no idea what I might be getting myself into. And the program director happened to be there, and he said, well, I actually need weekend people. Would you want to be on the air? So I jumped at it, uh, spent literally three Fridays training. That was it, three day, Friday afternoons, watching the program director do this shift, and then was thrown on the air at midnight one Friday night. While my friends were out partying and making drunken prank calls to me, I was sitting there trying to figure out how to load Britney Spears and Christina Aguilera and not leave too much time between records and get rid of my user accent and all that stuff. Uh, so that's how I got started in radio. I actually worked my way up from there. I worked at Beaver 103 for a few years, part-time in Scranton one summer, on another Top 40 station, moved to North Carolina out of college, worked down there at a Top 40 station for almost a year, uh, some family stuff. Uh, I had a, a cousin die very young. I wanted to be closer to my family, so I moved back to Pittsburgh in 2003. And just so happened that I was friends with someone who had been working in Syracuse, but had just moved to Pittsburgh to work at B94. Uh, his name's Kobe. And Kobe had heard my stuff. I had heard his stuff. We knew we had a similar sense of humor. So we went to his boss at B94 and said, hey, this guy doesn't have a job right now. And I think he's really good. Do you want to interview him for uh, if we have anything part-time? And so he put me in touch with Ryan Mill, who ironically enough is now the PA announcer for the Penguins at DPG Paints Arena, but then was the program director of B94. And I got an interview with Ryan Mill. Um, he, he actually played a pretty good practical joke on me. I, I sat down in his office and he asked about my experience, listened to my tape with me, things like that. And then said, well, you know, everything's cool. We just, we just need you to pass one last sort of screening. Um, you know, everyone here kind of cuts their teeth a little bit differently and uh, have to pay their dues in different ways. You know, we have the B mask on, right? Yeah, yeah, I know the BMF, but I've seen it out with the B94 van at different locations and things like that. Yeah, yeah. So sometimes, you know, we ask people if they can wear the B costume. To be honest, you know, you're going to be part time. And like I said, everybody's got to pay their dues somehow. Uh, so you might have to wear the B costume. Are you okay with that? And at this point, yeah, I'm okay with that. I'm living with my mom and her two cats, and I'm out of a job. I'm a year out of college. Yeah, so wear your B costume, Ryan. And then he said, well, okay, that's perfect. That's awesome. That's great. But we just need to make sure you're physically fit enough. It gets hot in there, man, especially in the middle of summer. It, we need to make sure you're physically fit enough to wear the big costume. And he made me run. I, and I, I wore khakis and nice dress shoes. And out. He made me run with friends down the hall outside his office. And I'm buying into the thing wholeheartedly. I'm like, you know what? This is what this guy wants for me. I will happily do it to work at B94. One of the stations I lived in growing up. Uh, and so he made me run up and down the hall. And then told me that he was just thrown with me. And yes, he'd be happy to have me on part time weekends, villains, things like that. So I worked at P94, which in and of itself, for a kid that grew up in Pittsburgh in the 80s, is checking the box. Um, and then once, to, to not get into too much of the backstory, when uh, Viacom decided 
that they needed to find a place to clear the Howard Stern show in Pittsburgh, uh, they decided to put it on that station. They couldn't put it on about 40 stations. They had to flip the whole station, turned it into K-Rock, got rid of a 25-year-old heritage radio station. And I, Howard's fantastic. But it, was, it crushed a lot of people at that point in time. But I got to stay on. I was lucky enough because I was a part-timer. All the full-timers had to go find different jobs. And I got to stay there helping with the transition from one station to another, loading music into the computer, scheduling music in some cases, doing an overnight shift, recording the old Love Line shows so that it could be played back the next night. Uh, all those little menial tasks eventually led to me doing middays on K-Rock for the little bit of time that it existed. You know, I, I would come on right after Howard Stern. I was on until three, and it was invaluable. I got to use my humor and my sarcasm a little too much at times, which is what ended up leading to me leaving the job. Um, and then after spending six months delivering newspapers from the Keysport Daily News in between jobs, uh, a guy named Brian Engel wandered into a PNC bank in Brentwood to get a loan. And the person that he sat down with to fill out the loan paperwork with was my then girlfriend, soon to be fiance. And she saw where he worked, which was at ESPN Radio Pittsburgh, and said, hmm, have you ever heard of Chris Matt? He said, yeah, yeah, I listen to K-Rock a little bit. She said, well, he needs a job and you work at radio station. How bad do you want this loan? <laughs> it, it, he didn't put it in those words, but it, he got his loan, and I got an interview with the program director at 1250 ESPN, uh, who was Jim Grace, who is now the program director at KDKA AM and FM. So I've known Jim since that first day I walked into his office in 2006, I think it was, um, looking for a job covered with ink from the Peaceport Daily News circulation department. And I started out doing a couple of tryout shifts, produced for Junker and Crow by Junker and Eddie Crow, the midday show. Eddie had worked with the old Demon Morning Show. I was a huge fan of as a kid, so that was cool. Guy Junker and Stan Sabern, I had grown up watching on TV, doing sports beat every night in Pittsburgh. They're legends. And then eventually the show became Stan and Guy. Eddie moved to afternoons with Scott Paulson, of all people, who... I was on that TV morning show. So now I'm working in a building after working with Junker and Crow. And for a time, Mark Matt, who isn't as bad in real life as he is on the air, um, I, I got to work with these people. Mark was, was always nice to me. Guy and Eddie were always wonderful to me. They knew enough to let me come to them with ideas. And then they took those ideas and molded them into a great show. And then continued after Matt and left. And Eddie moved after it. And it was standing guy, and I got to be a bit of a third wheel for a time. It was standing guy and Chris Mack. And I'm just looking at myself in the mirror every day saying, How the hell am I on the marquee of a show with these guys who are legends? <laughs> but it, it was a great experience. Um, and when the station folded and ABC decided to turn it back into Radio Disney, uh, and we all sort of were scattered our second direction. I tried getting in touch with 93.7 The Fan. At the time, their program director was a guy named Harry Fox, who works down in Atlanta now. And initially, he was responsive and just never got back to me. Uh, I, I 
I've never had a chance to talk to him about why that was, but I, I took it as a sign that I, I should find something else to do. So I, I worked with Trim for a while on their internet radio station, Trim Live Radio. And when that no longer was working out, because they couldn't really pay anybody much at that point in time, I had to go out into the real world and get a job. I was a director of sales for Concord Hospitality. We manage this hotel around the country, uh, and they have about a dozen, or used to have upwards of a dozen here in Pittsburgh. And I, I was director of sales for three years, two and a half years, uh, before I got in with Ryan McGuire, who was the program director of the fan. Jim Gracie had recommended me. Melanie Taylor, who I worked with at D94 and worked with Star 100.7, Bubba, uh, a whole bunch of people that were in that building, said, why haven't we? We answered this guy's call for emails. He wants to work here. There has to be something we can provide him. And they knew that I could provide some quality work for the station. So I started doing part-time shifts in February of 2014. Uh, after a couple of years, it led to the opportunity to be the Pirates Premium Post Game guy. And at the same time, I was sort of filling in the gaps uh, money-wise with PA announcing for Pitt soccer and wrestling and occasionally filling in on basketball, baseball sometimes. And it, it all came together that I was able to do the Pirates pre and post game stuff. And it really, I'll be honest, as much fun as it was, it also took a toll because I had a wife and two young kids. And in those days at the ballpark, you guys may know, you get there at 2.30 or 3 in the afternoon and when you're doing the post game show, you're not leaving the ballpark till 1 a.m. probably. So that part was tough for a couple of years, but it set me up and sort of got me on deck for when the next opening came to the station. And that happened with the morning show when Josh and left a couple of years ago. And I was presented the opportunity to work with Colin Dunlap and Jim Colony and Matt Cole, the producer, and jumped at it because I've, I've checked every other box in my career, really. I've worked for ESPN. I've worked with Scott Paulson. Uh, from the DB morning show, I consider him a friend. He's a phenomenal human. I've worked with Stan Saver and Guy Junker. Uh, I've worked with Mark Madden. I've worked with all these legends in Pittsburgh sports media. And now I get to check the last final box of I get to work in morning drive in my hometown. Which if you would have told me when I was 16 or 17 that I'd get to do that every day and talk about sports in the process, I'd have been like, okay, bucket uh, list fulfilled. So that's a long explanation as to where I started and how I got to where I am now and why I'm really blessed and lucky enough to be doing what I'm doing every day. Yeah, no, that's really cool to give the, the big description like that. I mean, especially, you know, as someone else who grew up in the Pittsburgh area and much like you, you know, listening to Jim Cran or Andy Bauman on the DV morning show on your way to school and, you know, guys like Stan Saverin and Guy Junker just – as a young sports fan in Pittsburgh at the time, you know, they're bigger than life. They really were. And, it, you know, that's – I can't imagine just – I know how I would have felt in that position to get to work with those guys. So I just – I can't imagine how just awesome that would be. And like you said, you know, I feel like almost anybody who grow up in an area watching the sports teams and that sort of thing, you dream of being in that position one day where you have the outreach on the radio or whatever it might be to be able to talk about the teams you always grew up watching and that sort of thing. So, yeah, that, that is awesome. And that's – just it's really cool to get that backstory, especially from someone like you, you know, who grew up in the Pittsburgh area and can really relate to all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, like, like you said, every single person I've been lucky enough to work with or, or, you know, at least at the same time as 
is legendary in this area. I mean, if you grew up in Pittsburgh, like I said, anywhere between the mid '80s and the mid to late '90s, you know all those names I rattled off. And I'm some random guy who went to Baldwin High School and barely got through Penn State four and a half years. And I'm lucky enough to work with all these people. So it really is. It, it, I think it's a testament to a couple of things. I, I shouldn't make it sound like I didn't work my tail off because I did uh, for a long time. And it's a testament to working your butt off and getting lucky. You know, if, if Brian Engel doesn't walk into that PNC bank branch where my wife worked and happened to be taking loan applications that day, Maybe I don't get a job at 1250 ESPN and work with Stan Saverin and Guy Jumper and Mark Madden and Scott Paulson and Eddie Crow. Maybe I don't meet the guy who eventually is my program director at the fan, you know? So it, luck is a big part of it, but I think you make your own luck. Uh, that's very true, and that's an incredible story, uh, you know, just all the way through the ranks. And like you said, it takes a lot of hard work to get there. Talk about kind of your on-air personality and how that formed and kind of when you noticed this is who I am on air. Uh, it happened right away. I, I come from a, my mother's side of my family, who I grew up around primarily, is my my aunt, who watched me a lot while my mom was either going to night school or working, uh, had old stand-up comedy in the 70s, whether it was Steve Martin or Richard Pryor or before anyone what a monster he was, Bill Cosby, but he was funny. Um, you know, and she would play those records, George Harlan even. And, and that honed a sense of humor in my family, my mother's side of the family, especially with my aunt. And so that sort of honed my sense of humor. A lot of sarcasm, um, sometimes biting sarcasm. And that sort of formed my personality, at least when I was first starting my career. You know, I have copies of old letters, complaint letters that I got when I worked at K Rock. I would do these bits that now I look back on them, completely tasteless. And but it helped me find what worked and what didn't work. Um, for a long time, especially when I was in my twenties, I thought, "Hey, just be sarcastic and cynical, and it'll come out funny." And sometimes it did. But then you get married, you have kids, you realize responsibilities, you realize there's maybe a little bit more of a sunshiny outlook on life, and it does. It changes your personality. So I still have that inner biting sense of sarcasm, but I sometimes pull the reins back on it because I realize that sort of some sort of inner id and it's not always what people want to hear and it's not always the most popular and and i've also learned i mentioned we have two young kids my younger child Braden, is seven and since he was about two uh we've known he has something called myoclonus dystonia which is a neuromuscular condition it makes it difficult for him to walk some days definitely difficult to run but he still loves to play baseball uh in-house baseball still loves to play hockey right now uh, he still loves to be active and play with his friends and I've seen that even when something like that happens, you can still find the positives in things. And so I, I think I've become a, a much more of a softy. You know, 23-year-old Chris Mack would have to 41-year-old Chris Mack and been like, dude, you're soft. And I'd say, I'd say back to 23-year-old Chris Mack, yeah, you know what? I am. You grew, I, I grew up. Um, so I, I still think I, I have a pretty good sense of humor and know what people want to hear. And when it's time to be serious, I think, which I've learned a lot over the last 15 to 20 years, um, that when you're in music radio, maybe you get around and joke around a lot because you're only on 30 seconds between songs. But if you're going to do a legit talk show, you get an actual view into how you think about things. 
you got to be serious sometimes. And you, that doesn't mean you can't have fun. So I, I try to bring all that together. And, uh, you know, knowing how seriously we all take our sports allegiances, uh, be serious when it's time to be serious, rant rave about our favorite teams when it's time to rant rave about them, and then joke around in kids when it's time to joke around in kids, which is just about every other fun time. We do take our, our sports teams very seriously, uh, you know, even if they want to stab us in the back every season like the Pirates do. Uh, but, you know, your roles were, were different, like you said, hosting a morning show versus doing the Pirates pre and post game. Um, you know, there's definitely some contrast. Talk about how your on-air personality kind of changed as those roles changed and your experiences with the Pirates. Well, yeah, I mean, when you're covering a team every day, you can't be the sarcastic, cynical cutoff when you walk into the clubhouse or sit down to Clint Hurdle's office. Um, You've got to, you know, I think it's cool for journalism. So I, I have to rely on those journalistic things that I was taught. You know, I, I still remember Tom 260 and Tom 360 at Penn State. Those classes taught me the basics. And so you have to carry yourself a little bit differently. And I, I, I'll be honest, again, other than the schedule keeping me away from home as much as it did, I absolutely loved it. You know, it, it was a chance to hone and craft those skills that I hadn't really used a lot since leaving college. So to walk into the clubhouse and break up a conversation with Jamison Tyler or Adam Frazier or Josh Bell or whoever it may be. And then down in Clint's office before the game. And really there's no quicker way to hone your ability to read people than to sit down in a manager's office about two hours, three hours before game time. You sit down, you try to figure out exactly where his head is and how you're going to ask questions that day and whether you can kid around and joke a little, whether you can even crack a smile, whether your questions better be really quick, short, and direct to the point, or whether you can give a little more explanation and color to them. Uh, that experience for two years were just invaluable, e- even if the teams at the time weren't necessarily that inspiring. I think, if, you know, talking about the pre- and post-game show with the Pirates – Chris, and I'm, I'm sure you'll agree with this. It would be it would do an injustice to talk about the post game show and not at least give a shout out to Chuck in Uniontown, who yes. I think anyone who is listening to this, who listens to the Pirates post game show on the fan with any sort of regularity, will agree that Chuck in Uniontown is always has been, and as long as the Lord is willing, will be the star of that show. Um, <laughs> I think what my question is with this is what interactions you would have with him on the air and that sort of thing, just with Chuck, what did put when you talk to him, you realize you're talking to in essence, one of those kind of local legends type of people and just how cool of an experience is it ha- is to have a guy like Chuck, especially with what a great human being he is the boot constantly calling into the show and being able to contribute and just knowing that there were people who would listen to the post game show, looking forward to hearing you talk to Chuck. Yeah, I mean, I think it's twofold. Uh, one part of it is the technical aspect of I know I have these three 16-minute segments or so that I have to fill in the post-game show. And I know that Chuck's going to be on hold as soon as I start the show. <laughs> but I also know that I've got to get the post-game interview with the player if, if, they, if there's one available. Um, I've got to get to the radio analyst from that night, whether it's Wayner or Locke or whoever it may be. Um, and then I, I've got to get to Chuck <laughs> because uh, what, what's nice about Chuck in Uniontown is that he 
cares so damn much. He doesn't call in just to hear himself on the radio. He calls in because he literally just sat there for three hours and listened to every bit. And he cares that much about the team. And it's important, I think, at least the way I did the game show, um, that it that you immediately got that sense of, okay, here's the player, here's the analyst, here's a quick recap of the big numbers and stats and moments, and now here's your voice, more or less, is the thing. Uh, here's what you may be thinking or feeling after watching that game, and Chuck channels that really well. It's awesome to have those kinds of fans, and really just to give them the opportunity to, to get on and voice their opinions. Very opinionated fans in Pittsburgh, as uh, I'm sure you know. Uh, but let's talk a little bit more about your experiences with the team itself. Maybe some stories. I'm sure being around a clubhouse like that all the time, being around those guys, has uh, got to be quite the experience. Yeah. Um, trade deadline day 2018. Um, the Chris Archer trade. Yeah. <laughs> Which at the time, I don't know about you guys, I loved it. I thought yeah. it was fantastic. Absolutely. Okay. I remember that the morning of the trade deadline, because I had just gotten married, I think it was on a Tuesday that year, so like two or three days prior. And Nick Caparosa, who's the other co-editor on the site, was my best man. And so it's like two or three days later, I'm trying to enjoy time with my wife and just our young kids and just relax. Well, Nick and I got an email from a guy who we knew at the time, who at the time he was a regional scout for Tampa Bay. He emailed us like nine o'clock that morning. And he's like, hey, you guys are getting Archer. I don't know the return, but you guys will get Archer today. Mm -hmm. So it's just all day long. You're, you're setting, we're sitting there constantly checking email, refreshing Twitter, this sort of thing. Meanwhile, I'm supposed to be on like my makeshift honeymoon. But no, I agree with you. I think at the time, everybody absolutely loved that trade. So that afternoon in the clubhouse, one of the weirdest moments I've ever witnessed off the field or off the playing surface in sports. Uh, because we're all standing around. And more reputable reporters who are more plugged in than me, guys like Adam Barry and Stephen Nesbitt, uh, Rob Beer Temple, they're looking at their phones and they'll start looking at each other. And Adam Barry just kind of walked past me, I, I think it was Adam or Stephen. And I said something like, Is this really happening? And they said, Yeah, it's happening. And so immediately you start churning in your head, What could the possible return be? You know, literally, there are two giant TVs in the clubhouse hanging from the ceiling that everybody's watching. Us and the players, we're all watching MLB Network, and we're seeing the scroll, Chris Archer, being traded to the Pittsburgh Pirates. And there was those few moments where we were all waiting to find out, okay, who's doing that? And I happened to be standing over in the corner of the room, which was Stephen Brawl, um other relievers uh, and Tyler Glasnow. <laughs> so they're all sitting there and they're talking to each other. I'm like, man, this is crazy. I can't believe it. And then at about the same time, everybody is, they were sort of looking up the screen while talking to each other. We all see Tyler's name scroll across the bottom of the screen as part of the return. And <laughs> Stephen Brault literally kind of tapped Tyler Glasnow on the shoulder and said, oh, and it just points at the screen. And everybody freezes for a second. And then one of the Pirates PR people comes out. It wasn't a PR person. One of the clubhouse guys, I think. Uh, walks out from like the shower area in, in the physical therapy area. And 
just kind of whispers in Tyler's ear and says, hey, you might want to get back for these guys. You know, if you want to dodge me, get out of your chance. And so Tyler just kind of got up and walked back into that part of the clubhouse that we're not permitted in. And it was just odd to see a guy realize he had just been traded right before your very eye. Like, that was a moment that, just because of the surrealness of it, because of everything that came together, because Archer was part of the deal, and we had been waiting for support to kind of move like that that year. And, and because Meadows was going, and then Glasnow, and you're standing there watching Tyler Glasnow realize, oh, man, I've just been traded. <laughs> it was surreal is the only way I can describe it. It wow, almost that. feels like it's one of those, you know, if you could be a fly on the wall, moments come to life. Yes. You know, because you always That's wonder exactly what it's like in the clubhouse or whatever when these guys get the word that they're being traded, especially when it's close to game time like that was. And, you know, like I said, just, you always wonder to be a fly on the wall there. In essence, that's what you guys were. Yes. I mean, people don't realize, I think, you know, it's not like it was 25, 30, 40 years ago when the reporters might sit down and have a cigarette with the guys or have a drink with them after the game or play cards with them in some cases. Um, it, it, there is a good bit of distance between the players and the reporters as far as personal distance. And I don't mean like actual physical distance. I mean like the sense of distance between the media covering the team and players. But there's also times where, you know, you might not have any baseball to talk about. You might have walked around the room and done a few interviews. Maybe you talked to last week's starting pitcher again about things from the night before. Or maybe you talked to somebody that you know is starting in two days so that you have the sound ready for the next day's pregame show. And you just see somebody and you start talking to them about stuff. You know, I, I talked to Wade LeBlanc one day about the two bridges in Lake Charles, Louisiana, because I have family in southern Louisiana, family that lives in Houston, Texas. And I had just taken a couple weeks off to go spend time with my family down there. And we had driven, me and my family and my dad drove from Houston out to Melchior, Louisiana, where my aunt and we had driven over one of these giant bridges that goes over Lake Charles. And I come back, and I know Wade's from there, so I'm talking to him about Louisiana. And I'm like, yeah, man, the drive was crazy. There were thunderstorms. And Nazis. Which bridge did you get? And I said, I don't know. We were on I-10, whatever bridge. He's like, oh, yeah. That's like one of the most structurally deficient bridges in the state, man. You're lucky you got over <laughs> And I'm like, thanks, thanks for the warning, Wade. I appreciate it. Uh, in hindsight, it's good to know that we survived the drive. But, you know, you have little conversations like that you would have with anybody, really. You know, talking to Jameson Tyone about coffee, as everybody knows, he loves to talk about. Talking to whoever it may be about whatever's going on in their everyday life. Talking to Jose Osuna about, you know, what Maracucho means, which is somebody from that part of uh, Venezuela that he grew up in, near Maracaibo. Um, little things like that. Talking to Cervelli and Elias Diaz about the political goings on in Venezuela at the time. Um, you have a lot of regular, normal conversations, and that's part of the benefit of being in there is you really do get to know these guys, at least in a distant sense. Like I said, you're not friends with them, you're not hanging out having beers, uh, you're not playing cards, but you do talk to them a lot about not just baseball stuff, which is which is a very cool aspect. Yeah, well, talk about that bond a, a little bit more. Like you said, you get to the ballpark 2 o'clock, maybe don't leave till 1 a.m. some mornings, getting to spend, you know, 81 home games with these guys. 
you know, how do you keep the professional and the, the personal relationship, just getting to spend so much time around these guys separated? Uh, you take your job seriously in that you're supposed to be a critic. Uh, and, and that's the first job of sports talk radio is take what you just saw and what just happened, whether it's on the ice, on the court, on the field, and tell people what you think of it and why it was good enough or not good enough or what you see it better. And do it with facts. Don't just say, hey, I think this because you think it. The best thing I learned during the pre and post game shift was have your stats ready, have fan graphs open, have your scorebook ready to go, and, and know exactly what you're going to talk about when you play that highlight for the third game and what the situation was. It, it was a 2 2 count, and you knew Arietta was going to throw a backdoor slider or whatever it may be. Know exactly what went into each situation so that you can speak from it, speak on it from an educated perspective. And I think that's tough to do, to bring it back to what I do now, it's tough to do that every morning when you might be talking about something that you didn't get to do all the research on or watch every single moment of. You know, if we talk about, for example, the Chief Browns game on Monday morning, I may not have watched it to play that game be quite honest. And that doesn't mean that my opinion is worth any less, but it means that I'd better than in retrospect go back and do my research before I'm going to talk about it. Too many people I think in our business get caught up in, well, I'm going to talk about it because that's just my opinion and that's fine because it's my opinion and as long as I word it well, write it well, my opinion is fine. Well, I still think we can live in a world and work in a business, the media, where facts are important. And this starts to tread down a path of what's going on in our world as a whole these days, the last 5, 10, 15 years. But I think that there's more people in our population that are willing to rely on facts and science and data about what we see every day, whether it's in sports or otherwise, and use those to then back up their opinions. Rather than just say, hey, this is my opinion because this is what I think. Well, that's fine. That could be your opinion, but you better realize when facts fly in the face of why you're stating that as your opinion, that it's going to make you look a little silly or a little less reputable. And I think there's a lot of people in the sports stock industry in particular that think just having a really strong opinion is enough, whether they've done the research or not. And I think that's still something that we can work on as an industry. And something that I try to do every day is know exactly what I'm talking about before I talk about it. Being objective is just so important. And, you know, you hear those guys like you're talking about that want to be the hot take guy or this or that. Um, but, you know, just like you said, being a critic and, and being objective and factual is the most important part. You can be a, a critic of these Pirates teams right now. It's not too difficult. Um, you know, this team finished in 30th this past season. What do you guys talk about on the show, you know, when, when the Pirates do come up? Um, you know, how do you kind of console fans and, and what do you say to them right now? I guess what's your outlook on, on this team as, as we continue to get into this offseason? Yeah, you know, I haven't had a chance to talk about the Musgrove deal on the air because I've been off this week. Um, but I think the Musgrove deal, piggyback off the metal deal, piggyback off the five picks, uh, all of it is coming together to give you a sense of the draft pick, all of it, the international signings. It gives you a sense that Ben Sherrington is all in on, what, three to four years now. 
With Neil Huntington towards the end of his tenure, we were never really quite sure. Is he all in on now or is he all in on the future? Why we get so excited about the prospect of Chris Archie uh, when it was looking like it was coming towards fruition or may happen and then when it did happen, why we were so excited about it? Because if nothing else, we got an idea of what the direction of the team was at the mm-hmm. time. And it was, we're in on now. And you look back on it now, it's a terrible trade. But at least it was a directive, right? And I think that's what we get from Ben Charrington right now, is there's a direction. The direction forward is building the best possible team for 2023 and 2024 and maybe beyond. Uh, and we know that that's the I think it, as a fan, at the very least, salves your rage just a little bit, right? Tamps it down a little bit. And you can look at it and say, all right, I don't like the return on the Josh Bell. But I understand why, because they weren't necessarily counting on him having a huge first half of the season again and he would drive his value back. They made the deal now. Whether they got enough or not, you can argue about, but at least they decided what their direction was. Same thing with the Musgrove deal. As much as we love the return on it right now, it's really good. We have to remember that it's about having a direction. And, you know, whether it's Frazier that goes in the next few weeks or whether Tyone to the Yankees is a real thing or not, or any other rumor get kicked up, it'll be about setting a path, charting a course for the next three to four years. And I think that's what's important to fans. Is at least, look, we've dealt with enough teams over the last year century here in Pittsburgh that did not compete in the National League. We're used to that. We just want to know that there's something to look forward to on the other side. In some cases, that's not even going to be enough for, for a certain contingent of fans. Well, let me know when they're good again. And I understand those fans. But for fans that are going to be in on the team every summer, whether they're good or bad, at the very least, if they know they're going to be bad, they'd like to know that there's something to look forward to. Yeah, absolutely. I, I totally agree with all of that, Chris. I mean, like you said, towards the end of the Huntington era, I thought that might have been his biggest fault more than anything else his last few years was – there's no clear cut direction. They were constantly trying to play the middle ground. It seemed, I mean, like you look at the Garrett Cole trade where instead of like focusing on the best prospects he could get, it seemed he was more concerned with trying to get guys who could play right away at the major league level. And we've seen that kind of blow up of Michael Feliz, you know, at least Musgrove got a good return and Colin Moran looks like if like he can repeat last season, maybe he's putting something together, but you know, it really felt like ever since the end of that 2015 season, when he didn't do a whole lot to address the starting rotation after you know, with Burnett retiring and just they were constantly stuck in the middle where they were never right. I, over the last year or so, they were never bad enough to you go into the season saying, all right, this team's going to stink, but they were never quite good enough to compete, which I think we saw because what 16, 17, 18, I think they were like 79 wins, 78 wins, 83 wins, like right in that middle ground. And he just never committed to anything. And I think ultimately that played a large role in his undoing as general manager of this team. And, you know, like you said with the direction, I think it's it's funny because that's it's similar to how it was early on when Huntington first got here, I felt, you know, when he did blow things up. But it's like, you know, you looked at the farm system at the time, you could see McCutcheon coming and he got here early. And you could see No Walker and Jose Tabata, Garrett Cole, Jamison Tyone, all these guys who were high draft picks, Pedro Alvarez, the high picks and the guys he got in the trades who people were excited for. And, you know, you got into like that 2011 season and yeah, the team wasn't very good, but you could see with McCutcheon and Walker 
and with Pedro Alvarez and Tabata and some of these guys, you could see where the franchise was going. And I do hope and I do believe that, you know, as we get into this year and into next year, and you already have Brian Hayes and Brian Reynolds, and you can add a Travis Swaggerty, an O'Neill Cruz, a Cody Bolton, some of these other young pitchers when they start to graduate next season and in 2023, it'll be similar to that where you can start to see the light at the end of the tunnel and start to see this young core developing again. Yeah, I, I, I think there's, you know, there, there's no worse place to be in major baseball right now than in the middle. It, it's just it's yeah, purgatory. And so ha, had they decided, which I still think the 2016 option after the wild card loss was the worst possible. You know, at that point in time, you need to decide that you've still got the talent available for a couple of years to compete. At the very least, you let Melanson and Alvarez and Walker play out the final years of their deals. Mm-hmm. And then after 16, you tear it down and you, you do everything you can to build for the next wave. And rather than do that, whether it was the owner's decision or the GM's decision or the GM's decision or the owner bought into it or whatever it was, they decided, well, we'll, some peel, we'll peel the siding off the house. But we'll still have the house. And they did that. And the Melanson deal and all of it. You know, Walker letting Alvarez walk, getting John for Neil Walker. Uh, it, it, it led them right down the path of the middle. Right, they they didn't go all yeah. in on the rebuild, and they didn't go all in on that year. And you can see that as the inflection point of the last decade or so, and the inflection point to the point of what you were saying, Marty. The inflection point of Neil Huntington's career as general manager. Mm-hmm. And even part of that too, when they didn't commit, you know, even if you kind of look at it a little bit further, I feel so. If you do tear it down for 2016, you're in a position where this is before Josh Harrison had a couple of poor seasons towards the end of his tenure. You could have moved him for something and built more in the farm system. This was before Garrett Cole had that 17 season where he was struggling with the home run ball, wasn't always healthy. You might have been able to maximize that return a little bit more. So just the premise of it is, I just totally agree with you. It's great to finally see them with a clear cut direction. And to Charrington's credit, he didn't wait either to start. I mean, last year when he moved Starling Marte in the offseason, you knew right then and there what he was doing. And, you know, it's just great to see, like you said, commitment to that direction. Yes, a lot of the returns in these trades, especially the Musgrove trade, looks really good. This farm system is gaining a lot of just attention and praise and things like that from Baseball America, from Fangrass, from wherever. So it definitely seems that the talent is there. But, again, it just goes back. The biggest thing is it's great to finally have a direction. Because, like you said, too, over the summer, you know, if you're going to want to go to the ballpark and you know the team's going to stink, that's going to impact things because you're not going to be as upset and that sort of thing whenever they do come out and lose 90 games because that's what you expect. It's not like some of those in-between years where you thought the team could be pretty good and things just didn't go well, and that's what causes a lot of the frustration and a lot of the anger in the fan base. Yeah, I, I think if there are guys that would can be excited to watch if you're not excited necessarily for that particular outcome of that game. That mm-hmm. helps a whole hell of a lot. We saw that, you know, yeah. as you pointed out earlier, when Andrew McCutcheon first came up, and those couple of years where they had collapses, you could see that they were still pushing, you know, the, the Ryan Ludwig, Eric Lee kind of deals, you know, that kind of stuff <laughs> gave you hope, right? That they at yep. the very least were presented with an opportunity to fortify around those young stars and try to jump at it. And so now I'm curious to see 
you know, it's going to be fun to go to the ballpark this summer if you can. At the very least, watch on television and see Cabrian Hayes and fight through what I'm sure will be the ups and downs this season. See if Brian Reynolds can bounce back. See if Newman can be an everyday player and look at all like he did in 19 for a time. You know, where does Cole Tucker fit? A great personality, great kid, but can he hit? You know, uh, there's a lot of things to watch for this year. And I think if you're a Pirates fan, you're going to watch, like I said earlier, those things every year, regardless of how good you think the team is going to be. But it helps a whole lot more when you can envision the guys who are having success this year, the young guys having success, uh, the Hayes, the Reynolds, the Tuckers, if they have that success again this year, when you can envision them being surrounded by future pieces. It gets you excited, and you know, just to see some of this youth get up to, to have Cabrian Hayes come up, um, you, you know, it just it gets people, I guess, excited because this team's heading in the right direction. You can see the the direction. If nothing else, um, you know, we talk about this twenty twenty one season though. Where do we expect the Pirates to end up? We talked about it the last time we met here on Run Bunter Radio. We kind of projected win totals and whatnot for you, Chris. What do you expect out of this team in twenty one? Obviously, still part of this rebuild. Yeah, I mean, I, I just mentioned all the reasons to be positive. <laughs> Unfortunately, very young reasons and in some cases very inconsistent reasons. And I didn't mention a single pitcher, really, because I, I don't know what the hell to make of Mitch Keller at this point. Uh, I, I just don't, he, he, he may be really good. He may be out of baseball for a year. I, I, he's so hard to project. Um, so I'll say this. It's going to be another difficult year. And I would suspect that before the trade deadline, Ben Charrington probably peel off some things uh, that have the year that may be valuable to find. Whether that's veteran free agent goes out and get, you know, which Moreland rumor is out there right now. Whether it's a Colin Moran, uh, maybe he has another good half of a season and they say, hey, this guy's never going to let's move him. Whether it's, it could be anybody, to be honest. Brawl, uh, Richard Rodriguez. Stratton, if they have good first halves, if people need bullpen, that's going to be the kind of year. So I still think they're a 16 team. Maybe if things fall apart early and they never really get going in the right direction, it's really bleak and it's a 55 win team. Maybe if they do everything right, young guys play well, it's a 65 win team. But I think that's the range, and I probably fall right in the middle there, 60 and 102. You know, uh, go for 63 wins and avoid the 100 losses and have a little something <laughs> to celebrate, I guess. It's not about even the wins and losses this year, I don't think, guys. I think it's about, like, all the guys, all the names I just mentioned. Keller, Hay, Reynolds, Newman, Tucker. Uh, are these guys going to be part of the core going forward? I, I trust the age will be, but the other guys especially, what are we going to see the growth from them that tells you they're going to be a part of the next Pirates team in two or three years? And this is the year to watch it. You know, this is the year where, you know, we see what Mitch Keller's all about, if he makes it or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you cover Pittsburgh sports, not just the Pirates. Uh, talk about how maybe it's different handling the Steelers or the Penguins, teams that have a little bit more success versus the Pirates. We field all kinds of questions on, you know, through our Twitter account and whatever else. Pirates fans are mad sometimes. How do you, you know, you deal with that comparatively? Well, I think you have to come from the frame of reference that expectations are always going to be different. Uh, 
and, and fairly or unfairly, the expectations of everybody in this town as a sports fan is that my favorite team is going to compete for a title. And when you're faced with the reality that your team is not going to compete for a title, you get a little upset, especially if it doesn't look like they're trying to compete for a title again anytime soon. So the Steelers and the Penguins are always going to be in contention for a title. When they fall short, it's going to be talk about, are they doing the right thing? And not the right things as far as spending money necessarily, but the right personnel, the right people in play, players and coaches. And with the Pirates, the money part is always going to be important. Like it or not, it just always is. Because Major League Baseball system is set up that way. Until they have a hard cap and some sort of salary floor and a more robust revenue sharing agreement like the NHL or the NFL or the NBA, they're just they're going to acknowledge that everybody's playing on a different plane. It's not level. And if that's the case, Money is always going to be a part of the conversation. Again, fairly or unfair. So I think that's the difference when we talk about the Pirates. Is our expectation in Pittsburgh is that our teams are going to win and that they're going to compete for titles. And we haven't seen it for so long from the Pirates. And the common thread that runs through all of it is mismanagement over the years. Whether it be mismanagement of finances, mismanagement of uh, personnel resources, of draft picks, whatever it may be. And so show us that those three years were more than just a blip, that this organization can sustain the winning. I think that's really hard to do in Major League Baseball for a team in a market this size. They're not one of the smallest ones. Milwaukee can do it, and they've sustained success over the course of the last decade or so. And they're going to go through a little bit of a down cycle here. But they're also going to spend the money to try and get out of that down cycle. And I think that's all Pittsburgh sports fans want from the Pirates is evidentiary proof that they're doing all they can to compete. And that's not just spending the money on international signing or making the best draft picks and giving them the highest signing bonuses. It's not just giving them the best minor league development system money can buy. It's spending money at the major league level. And understanding this year and next year may not be the years to do that. But when the time comes and you've got a championship caliber team put together or close to a championship caliber team put together, you better support it and sustain it every way you can and not create the next Joe Walker for the next John Meese. And that's mm-hmm. going to be the key going forward. People are going to, you know, Evan Flow is fans of the Pirates all the time. But in order to get the Main Street sports fans in Pittsburgh back into the Pirates wholeheartedly, they're going to have some success and then evidentiary proof that the organization is willing to do anything up to and including financially to sustain that success. Yeah, absolutely. You just, you know, you took the words out of my mouth. It's just twofold. One, with baseball, it's always going to be tough because of the lack of a salary cap. I mean, even. You look at the Penguins from after they made the Eastern Conference Finals, it was either 2001 or 2002, up until the lockout and Crosby being drafted. They had a lot of struggles, and that was part of it was hockey not having a salary cap yet. And also, like you said, making that commitment. Coming out of 2015, they just won 98 games. With the exception of A.J. Burnett retiring, most of that group was back, and they just did nothing to support it. 
And that's the type of thing where you spend those three years building up a lot of trust and goodwill with the city and with the fan base. And then you come out and have that off season that just totally ruined it. And like we said earlier, it was probably the start of the downfall in Neil Huntington. Yeah, and I, and I think you mentioned the Penguins there, Marty, but it, it's important to note that the Steelers are going through a bit of this transition right now too, or could be, because their quarterback can fuck up, uh, you know, 25% of the salary cap. Uh, and so you move on from a, a franchise player and a face of the franchise at this point, or do they kick the can down the road? And again, it's because of the cap. And nonetheless, I think Steelers fans, Pittsburgh sports fans, expect out of the Steelers that they will still do everything they can to compete. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're granted now the ability to make that conversation about is Ben good enough to compose that kind of cap. The same way after this season, the Penguins will have to look forward and say, is Christopher Tang worth the cap hit in the final year of his contract? Uh, is this guy worth this? Is this guy worth that? In baseball, it's fairly or unfair. It's not about is this guy worth that or not worth that. It's about are they managing the resources appropriately enough that whether a guy is worth it or not, you're all in on what you're doing. It comes back a little bit to the stay away from the middle of the road. Either get in the left lane, mm-hmm. you know, put the foot down and go after it, or get over on the shoulder and change the tire and then get going again. Whether you're a Penguins fan, a Steelers fan, or a fan of the Pittsburgh Pirates, guys, you know you can turn to Chris Mack for everything you need to know. Host of the Fan Morning Show on 93.7, Chris, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thanks for the time, guys. I really appreciate it. It was fun talking to you. And uh, best of luck this season uh, to both of you and the entire site. Uh, if you ever need anything, I'll be afraid to reach out. All right. Awesome, dude. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. Thanks so much, Chris. Great stuff. Thanks for taking the time to listen to our interview with Chris Mack and for listening to Rump Bunter Radio as always. For Marty Leap, my name is Trey Yannity. As always, guys, you can find us on fansided.com, at our social media at Rump Bunter, on the Rump Bunter app, and Apple Music as well. Have a great weekend, everybody. Let's go, Bucks. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.